some good rock and roll coming up for you now. The guys from Kiss have arrived. They snuck in the back door. You spend your whole life doing the first few albums, and then suddenly everybody needs your attention. Erica M. The invention of the VJ. A flashback on the career that made them who they are today. On this episode. Hi, I'm Jerry David Mulligan. Nice to have you back with us again. Absolutely no way that you can ever put a value on creative freedom. No boundaries, creative freedom. What do you want to do? Go ahead. Here's a camera. Here's a studio. There's there's people who will support you and help you. What do you want to do? This is Erica M's Reinvention of the VJ. Now, here's Erica M. Hey there, I'm Erica M. And welcome to what is going to be a bit of a music history lesson on this episode of my Reinvention of the VJ podcast. My guest today has been a fixture in the Canadian music scene way before the Beatles. Yeah, you heard me right. When he joined Much Music in 1985, two decades after his first gig as broadcaster, there were already rumors swirling around that there's a portrait of him growing older in an attic somewhere. Uh, This guy does not age. He's interviewed over a thousand performers over four decades. He's adored by musicians, especially on the West Coast of Canada, and he continues to reinvent himself with no sign of slowing down. My guest today is the unstoppable Terry David Mulligan, affectionately known as TDM. (laughs) Before I invite TDM into the conversation, let me give you just a bit of background about this podcast. I was told that if I wanted to launch a podcast, I should pick a topic that only I could do it justice. So I was thinking, what is something that I can speak to with authority that very few others can? Sure, I can speak to motherhood, having built the YMC mom community and a marketing agency, but being an ex-VJ who has changed careers, grown businesses, and reinvented myself, that resonated with me. And... Therefore, I created Reinvention of the VJ, unscripted and heartfelt conversations with the talented and much-loved hosts that you probably grew up watching on Much Music. Now, listen, I was only at Much for the first decade, so many of the guests being featured on the show I've never actually worked with. But there's one thing that we all have in common. Each of us played a small part in Canada's most influential pop culture platform. And then... We left at different times for different reasons. Each of us set off on our next adventures. And it's that story of what happens after much, the reinvention, the resilience, innovation, the luck, the struggles, and the perspective. That's what really intrigues me. So I want you to know that I am super grateful that you've chosen to take the time to listen to today's show. So I hope that you enjoy all of TDM's stories, and I am sure he's going to have a lot of them. I also want you to discover some tidbits and some insights into what it takes to reinvent and to make the life that you want. Because if TDM can do it, why not you, right? If I can be totally honest with you, I'm having way more fun doing this show than I actually imagined. It's allowing me to have conversations with some fascinating people who I only would have met through our much connections, which brings me to today's guest. Terry David Mulligan, TDM, and I have always worked at opposite ends of the country. We've worked together briefly on events like the Much Music Video Awards, but for the most part, we've never really had a good sit down 
until now. TDM, welcome to the show. Thank you. Welcome, 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 welcome. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, it's weird to watch this time go by. As you as you speak about it, I have flashes. I, I think about places and moments and that I haven't thought about in quite a while, but they're locked away. All you have to do is unlock them. We're going to unlock them today. But before we do that, I need I need to talk to you about something, okay? And there is not an ounce of facetiousness when I ask you this question, okay? You are approaching 80. You've got TV shows on the go, radio shows on the go. You're all over social media. You've got a home studio. You rock the grandkids. Terry, what the hell is your secret to staying so young? And I'm not actually kidding, seriously. Hmm. Well, the thing is, yeah, I don't think about it. I don't think about being old or young. Um, I, I will admit to uh, this. This, this is supposed to be in sort of uh, in in uh, uh, acting terms. This is Act Three, right? There's the beginning. There's the first thirty of your life. There's the middle. That's a blur. And then there's and you and you actually become aware of the days going by, the weeks going by, the years going by, and you keep looking around you. Me now, I'm I'm seeing not only famous people. We wake up every morning and we go, oh man, you look at John Prime. You go, oh John Prime, oh my God. And then you the next day it's somebody else, and it's somebody else, and you're surrounded by people of the same age. Uh, at least I did growing up. Now, and. Um, and and you think is it them or me? Who's go? How long are we going to be around? And, and so you just you have all you can't let it get to you. All you can do is charge forward. I know that uh, Meg keeps asking me why are you working so hard, but then she understands because uh, it keeps me um, active. It keeps the brain going. It keeps the body going. It makes you make decisions. Makes you reason. Just I mean, in the research, just reading the research alone helps me. Uh, and um, I just feel all of everything's functioning except for the yeah, it's, it's It certainly is functioning. I want to go back now. I'm going to let's see how well your memory oh, yeah. um, is. Okay. Tricky. I remember seeing a photo of you on a cover of a magazine way back in the day. Mm. Uh, you were dressed like a Mountie. And I was thinking, oh, that is so perfect because TDM is like the all Canadian broadcaster. We all love him. And then I find out you're actually, you actually were a freaking Mountie. I was a freaking Mountie. Yes. When you were 18 years old. Just as I applied, they changed the date, the birth date that you could apply from 18 to 19. So I had to sort of kill a year. I worked in A&W. I went down to the States and drove around. And then I was 19 and I was immediately shipped out shipped out. And um, I, I was, at, I left Kamloops at the time. My father was the game warden there. And I got on a train and I got off in Regina um, in the middle of a snow, a blizzard. And the, and the sergeant, no, the corporal who, who was there waiting for me at about three or four o'clock in the morning, half of them was covered in snow. The other half was a buffalo robe. And I looked at him and I thought, what the hell have I done? What have I done? This is madness. And so I challenged myself to survive the year in, in training and then became a Mountie. You know, I, I read a book 
called The Alchemist. I don't know if you read that book or not, but part of the sort of the theme behind it is that we are all presented with signposts that um, sort of point to your destiny, but we only see those signposts when we're ready. Yeah. And when I heard about your story about being a Mountie and then the way you discovered radio, I thought, man, that is a signpost. Can you tell me the story of how you went from a Mountie to beginning a recording or a radio announcing career? Can I give you two answers? Is one not true? <laughs> In terms of signposts, it wasn't until later when somebody interviewed me um, and they said, how did you get from there to there? And I, I started to look back on my life when I was growing up. I went from North, Cam, uh, North Vancouver. My father took the game boards and job in Kamloops. And all of a sudden I'm going to North, North Cam High, North Cam. And um, I'm the guy that's doing the, uh, the PA announcements, you know, in the principal's office. Uh, why? Because uh, I like the microphone. Uh, Friday afternoon at noon, I I did I played records in the gym, and not, everybody showed up and had food fights. And I so there was something about that microphone, about the music that was moving me along. So anyway, I'm a Maori, and I'm go, I'm 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 in my uh, uh, RCMP uh, uh, vehicle, uh, cruising and driving. I'm listening to the car radio, the radio I should listen to, but I have a. Um, music on the on the car radio and and at nighttime if i'm doing the night shift i'm listening to jazz stations coming in from vancouver and salt lake city and uh and and then one of the guys one of the announcers locally in red deer was a guy named hal weaver who ended up at chum toronto like he was really good i don't know what he was doing there but he was really good with a huge voice and he and i got to be friends and he invited me up to the radio station and I took, I, I went up those 32 steps. And as soon as I saw that control room, he was doing his show standing up in a three piece suit. Like, you know, you can wear anything on radio. It sweats. That's a hockey sweater, whatever. You, you don't have to get dressed up for radio. He was dressed up to the nines. He had a neck mic, a ring around his, and a microphone sitting right here. And he was moving and shaking. He was taking all of the records, throwing them up in the air, pulling them on the turntable. And, uh, and I just went, oh, this is cool. And, but wait, can and I just he, go back for a second? Hmm? You did? Did you just call him up and say, "Hi, can I?" You don't know me. My name's Terry. Can I come watch you at the station? <laughs> no, he, no. I, he, uh, uh, I, we just became friends. I, I, I don't know how that worked out. He, I, I saw him doing his show uh, at an A and W, and I was uh, parked, and I walked over and talked to him and looked at the music and all that stuff, and that that's what started it. Ah, okay. but but he said. I think you want to do this, don't you? I said, no, I'm a, I'm a policeman. Try, let's try something. Let's record something. We recorded it. It was terrible. We recorded it a second time and a third time. And I started, to get, I started to get a little comfortable with it. I didn't have to operate the board. He was doing it. And eventually we did a demo and they hired me. And that's the end of that. That's, that's so cool. That was just unbelievable. And I, had, I actually had to phone my father. If you want to leave the RCMP, uh, you have to do what you, you call purchase. You have to purchase your way out. You have to pay your way for everything that they paid for your training, uh, whatever's left on it. Uh, you put it in five years initially. And um, and I purchased, which is a, uh, a dark stain on your, on your uh, career with the RCMP. Um, 
And I phoned my father and I said, Dad, uh, I've left the RCMP. To do what? I'm going to be a disc jockey, Dad. And he hung up and he didn't talk to me for a couple of years. He was very disappointed. But I kind of knew, it kind of felt like I had done the right thing. I really didn't know myself. I just thought, what the hell have you done? And then everything started to, I just loved what I was doing. I loved the world that I was in. And then I, that, that was it. And I starved for a good five years. I made no money. I had no, nothing, nothing. I had no money, no honey, no nothing. And eventually it all sort of worked out. You sent me some photographs uh, when we knew that we were going to do this conversation. And I was freaking out. One of them that you sent was you and Janice Joplin. Yeah. Can you tell me the story of Terry and Janice back in the day, when that was and what happened? I, I, I can't tell you where exactly that was. Probably the Coliseum. It was taken by uh, James O'Mara, who was the photographer who took that great shot of, of uh, Brian Adams and his Rickenbacker and his leather jacket, that first one that we really love, the Cuts Like a Knife album, that one right there. He, sh- he And he's shot lots and lots of stuff. But... Um, uh, that was backstage and we were talking about uh, introductions and things like that. Janice and I, I got to meet her long before she became famous. Uh, I, I walked by a, a, play, um, a building that's still on fourth Avenue in Vancouver called the Russian hall. And they were rehearsing in there. They were getting ready to do a sound check. And I just, I leaned against the door and people were walking by nobody knew who they were. And we became friends and then she became famous. And uh, I interviewed her maybe half a dozen times. Uh, but the deal with Janice was she was a nervous interview. Um, as good as she was on stage, she was very nervous around a, a single microphone and just answering questions. And so she drank Jim Beam and bourbon and whiskey uh, just to calm her nerves. But she insisted that you drink with her. And I was not <laughs> a whiskey drinker. I, I didn't drink whiskey at all. And I would have two mouthfuls and I'd start to lose it. And I'd have three or four mouthfuls and I'd be gone. And she would laugh her ass off. And the interview would fall apart and we'd separate. And I'd see her another six months later. And we'd do exactly the same thing. That, that was the deal. You had to drink with it. Uh, you didn't send me a photograph of you and Jimi Hendrix. But legend has it that you guys were tight. Yeah. I, I wish we, we had been tighter. I wish we had been friends, actually. Um, and how is it that I could do a half hour interview with the entire Jamie Hendricks experience, Noel Redding, all those guys and not get a photograph? What was I thinking? What? He'll be back in the next couple of weeks. Maybe we'll do it then. Uh, I really liked him a lot. I liked him a, a great deal. Uh, and, um, and he grew up in uh, Vancouver, um, uh, uh, partially because he, his family was sort of fractured in Seattle and his aunt uh, and his grandma were there. Uh, Vise, a little, just a little place called Vise. Uh, it was a, a, a breakfast, a lunch, dinner place. It was the first black restaurant in, in Vancouver. And, and the building's still there, actually. Uh, and so we kind of had that connection. We had that connection. And, and I really liked him as if he wasn't the, near the fearsome guitar burning demigod that that uh, everybody else saw i just saw him as jimmy kind of cool you know 
well, it's all cool. The fact that you have seen so many artists at the beginning of their careers and you've been able to not just watch their careers, but participate in their careers. Uh, Joni Mitchell is another one. You sent me a photograph of you and Joni Mitchell when she looked like she was 18 or something. You probably were, too. <laughs> With a beard? Oh, I don't think so. Um, that was that shot, by the way, is a black and white shot taken backstage. It was the first fundraiser to start a group called Greenpeace. Wow. And actually, you know what? I found this. I found this just the other day. This is an album. I don't know if I can hear it. Sorry for those of you who are just listening. Uh, this is called uh, Amchitka, uh, the 1970 concert that launched Greenpeace. Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, Phil Oaks, right? And, wow. and somebody did a, 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 a recording on the board, obviously. And uh, the book came out, then the album came out, and I was on it. And they sent me some shots of the night. I, I had forgotten that I'd done this, by the way. When they phoned me about the, and get a hold of me about the book, I went, what? I was what? I was where? I had forgotten that this had happened. And then I saw the photographs. And there's a shot of me, you won't believe this, there's a shot of me adjusting her microphone. Where are the roadies? Where's the stage manager? And why am I adjusting Joni's microphone? I don't get it. Anyway, um, that, uh, that night they raised thirty-five, thirty-seven thousand $37,000 and started Greenpeace. That, that one night right there was fantastic. And then, um, uh, uh, but the cool thing is that I had known Joni a lot, many years before when I, I was, um, one of the deals I had in Regina was, uh, still the young announcer was if, if I MC all of the folk club things at the fourth dimension coffee house in Regina, I could stay in the other half of the band house, which was cool. <laughs> right. So I'd stay in the other half of the band house and whoever was playing the fourth dimension coffee house would stay in the other half and we'd meet in the kitchen. So Joni and Chuck Mitchell show up. Chuck's nowhere to be found. They're there for two weekends. So I've got 10 days with Joni Mitchell in the living room. And so we, uh, we always had that connection. We always had that connection. That's, that's incredible, <laughs> Terry. You, you have seen things that, um, well, I'm going to hear about some of the things that you've seen. And the thing is that because you've stayed in the music business all these years, you become this repository of music knowledge that you can pull out for all of your interviews and you give such deep context to everything. It is no surprise that you were hired in 1983 to be the very first VJ in Canada. Now that's interesting because people think it was Christopher Ward mm. on Much Music, but in fact, it was you on the CBC. Mm. So tell me about how you ended up hosting Good Rocking Tonight. Um, well, I was doing a, a Fox at the time uh, in Vancouver. And um, I think there were auditions. I think I can remember doing something in front of a camera. It seemed like just a great extension of what I was doing on radio. It didn't seem like a, it was out of reach. I had some acting training. That helped. That helps a lot. And uh, I, it just felt like I could do this. 
is very, you, you've been there. You understand that when you walk in, all of a sudden you're very sure of yourself. We're all sure of ourselves. That's what, that's what we have in common. Um, in this case, they saw what they wanted that they, they needed someone to do someone who's very, because nobody was doing rock and roll on television, as you know. Right. And the people running television wanted nothing to do with rock and roll. Or Wait a second. Anything. I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt for a sec. That's not actually true because the new music was on the air already at that point. I think it started in 1979. Yeah. It was a different type of a show. It was more documentary. It was more, you know, in the but street still music. Good. Yes. But where yes. I was in Vancouver, they wanted nothing to do with it. The people running television wanted nothing to do with any of this stuff. And uh, and so it, it took Ken Gibson, who was the producer, uh, who'd come from England and knew Top of the Pops and Old Grey Whistle Test and all that stuff. And he, he just he said, why are we not doing it here? So that's he convinced them to do it. And I was the guy to step forward. And um, I, I knew it was a hit. I did. I, I, you could just... There was a buzz and I was getting uh, mail, real mail and people on the street and, and they didn't think they had anything. I knew it was going to do really well. And it did. How did you know that it was going to do well? Well, it was just a buzz. People t- talking about it. You, you know, th- th- that was the it's not like email now. That's that was a rule of thumb. People talking about it to you. If if two or three or four people in, in a single day talk to you about mentioned that, that they saw or heard something. That's okay. Then the next day, if you get three or four, and then then is word of mouth, and you think, okay, now we got something going on here. And then much music started in 1985, and you went, "What the actual heck? <laughs> you're 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 on my territory." No. How did how did you how did you get connected to much? Did I, you ask was, them? Did they I, listen? I was thrilled by much music. I just like that one. Wow, wow! Look at that. Nobody is apologizing for anything. They're just doing it. Mm. They're just running with the ball. Uh, and and I thought, that's fantastic. So here's the deal. I'm in Toronto, and I don't know why I'm there uh, for some sort of an event, I think. Uh, and Meg, my wife, is with me. We're in a hotel room. And for some reason, that was the moment that I phoned Moses Neimer. You uh, called him. And him. And it must have been arranged for me to call because I, I I had my pitch and Meg listened to this entire conversation that I had on my end like this. If, if you can't see at Terry right now, he's holding his hands over his face. And I think his wife was feeling some sort of horrific Sorry, conversation was yeah. happening. True. He, she thought I had completely blown whatever opportunity I had to talk to him because I was basically saying I was challenging. I knew a little bit about him to know that that's, that's he kind of challenged people in conversations, as you well know, Erica. That's the first thing he did was challenge you just to see how you reacted. And you remember um, what he said to challenge you? Uh, he said, uh, uh, who are you and what do you do? And I said, I'm your competition and I'm kicking your ass. And, and so there was a side though. He didn't drop the phone. He didn't hang it up. I just had to say something to get his attention. And I said, if you don't, have, if you haven't noticed, most of the Junos over the last couple of years are heading to the West Coast. You guys are not out there. You're, you're not the nation's music station. You're Ontario. You're Toronto's music station. Let's expand this. Let's get it out. We have. Why are we not doing something on the West Coast? This, I was more a fan of much music than he realized. And so, uh, and he said, and you're the guy. I said, I'm the guy. So, um, 
somehow we came to an agreement. And and somebody uh, somebody uh, wrote an article about uh, when I, I hooked up with Much Music. So at the end of the article said, let's see how long these two get along. But I thought that the key to my success at Much Music, at least staying alive and well, was that I was on the West Coast and Moses was in Toronto. And I, I was happy with that. I love talking to him. But, you know, he's, it was, he was a tough cookie. I think that for the most part, he left a lot of people alone. Yeah. And it's kind of fascinating when you think about what you were doing. You launched a branch of Much Music on the West Coast. Yeah. What kind of direction or limitations or structure were you given uh, to run Much West? Uh, actually, it was a, it was a, a 50-50 um, conversation because I had ideas about how the West could be covered. Uh, and, and then I had to fit it into the, what the John and Nancy wanted for, for much music. John and Nancy said, just go to a BCIT and get a student and see if they can find a three quarter inch camera and a recorder. And then, and then see if you can have them come out and meet you once a week. I went, you can't, John, you can't shoot like that. Look at you guys. You've got cameras, you've got dedication, you've got editing suites, you've got everything. So we finally worked out an agreement. I had to, it took, took me a while, believe it or not, to find shooters who understood what much music, you, as you know, the much music shooter was the best. They were the best. Everybody on camera, they were the best. Basil and Jay and all those guys, they were the best. And it was up to you to keep up to them. And they were really sharp. I couldn't find that on the West Coast, at least not initially. I eventually did find shooters that, that got it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, basically I just, I tried to shoot as much as I could. I shot seven days a week. <laughs> When it because there was this this ongoing and still probably to this day this ongoing uh, uh, folk myth that it it rains every day in Vancouver, doesn't it? When it didn't rain, we would grab a camera and go out and we would shoot like five shows in shorts and t-shirts in the middle of winter just to piss people off. I just <laughs> loved doing it. It was such fun, and we really that and that's what it was. I just tried to have fun with the camera, and uh, there was lots to shoot. Well, you basically became the ambassador of Western Canada to the rest of the country. But they needed a voice, right? Yes. And I I remember you being frustrated because, I don't know, you had like an hour a week or some sort of a, you didn't have a lot of time on air. And I remember, and I'm not sure if I actually heard you in John and Nancy's room, but you were always begging for more airtime for all of the bands. Well, because I could see what was going on around me, and um, and as you well know, it's it, it's it's pretty rock solid that the music business runs from Toronto out. That's where all the headquarters are. That's where all the decision makers are. Same thing with the film business. Um, and uh, I just thought I have to be as aggressive as I can be uh, and keep my job. Uh, and and speak up for bands in Edmonton and Calgary and Winnipeg. Oh my God, Winnipeg, man! Just to this day, Winnipeg is just filled with artists, filled with bands, and and the West Coast, and then Vancouver Island. And uh, we kept celebrating ourselves. And I thought that's not good enough. How about with the rest of the country? So that's what I decided to do. And and it felt really good to do that to be able to speak on behalf of your constituency, your friends. You know. So when you launched 
much west and it started to take off. Um, tell me how the music industry changed in the western part of Canada, thanks to Much West and TDM. Well, I, I mean, you and I can talk out, easily talk about how much music changed the music business in, in Canada, period. Totally. Uh, uh, bands that wouldn't have gotten arrested by radio were welcomed with open arms, and then their neighbors and their friends and everybody else came along with them. Um, it, was in, it, was, it was a warm hug to musicians across the country. It, there's a place, you have a home. We didn't say it. We just were it. That's what we were. And, um, and so I, that's the same thing I was selling on the West Coast was you have, a, you have a voice now. You have a camera. You have a way to talk to the rest of the country all the way to the, to the uh, East Coast. And just imagine if you get their attention with your music, you can go tour there. And you and you can get support from from uh, much music, and the whole thing. That's that's what we're. That was the best thing of all, was that much music brought together all of these communities. It's a huge country, as you well know, and uh, all of a sudden we were, we just brought the whole country together. It was magic. Yeah, and I think what I loved about it so much was that the kids in Newfoundland knew what the kids in Vancouver were listening to. There never had been sort of a national voice of music. Everything was spread out, obviously, because the country is so big. And so we started this, I think, I would say that we started this Canadian culture as opposed to regional cultures. Yeah. Were we thinking about that at the time? I think we were just doing what we were doing yeah, I don't know I don't if I was thinking to... about anything. It, I think I was head down, just doing yeah. what we love to do and talking about the music and obviously sharing the bands that we loved and giving them a lot of, you know, airtime. But I don't know if we had, if I had the vision of we're bringing, we're, we're changing Canadian culture. I don't know that we thought that. <laughs> I got that. I got that maybe because I was on the outside looking in because mm -hmm. I was watching much music from afar and I studied it. I, I, I thought it was a great idea, a long time coming and it was fantastic. That's why I wanted to be there. Um, I can remember Alan Doyle from great big C and his solo career talking about uh, everybody, he uh, great big C and everybody around him were making music that they had, that had been handed down from family, uh, generation to generation, sea shanties, uh, Celtic music, fiddle tunes, whatever. And then along came a video that Spirit of the West had done, uh, Home for Arrest, I think it was, uh, and Much Music showed it, and it changed everything in the Maritimes. All of a sudden, they realized that you could be a punk band and still do these same tunes. You could be aggressive and, and popish and loud and aggressive and still do the same. They were both doing the same, but, but John Mann and Spirit of the West showed a new direction for Celtic music and they just grabbed onto it. It was a, it was a big deal. And he says it was the start of his real music career. Did he tell you, did Alan tell you that I was the first much music person to discover the band and interview them? No. You want to hear the story? Yes, I do. It's actually a really sweet one. 
I was hosting a show called Clip Trip at the time, yep. which was music that was um, sort of not mainstream, uh, international type music, uh, not straight pop music. And so <laughs> Newfoundland has a unique style of music. So myself and Morgan Flurry, who was one of the producers, went to spend a few days in Newfoundland to shoot a show. And we were invited to Alan's Kitchen. And we were invited to a kitchen party with the band. And uh, yeah, that was, that was really wow. fun. I, all I remember is it was amazing. And I was sitting on his lap and they were, I think, signed about a year later or something like that. It was a great, it was a great memory for me. How much footage do you have? Well, I have nothing. You? I have nothing. Like much music no. has it all. Some of it, some of it ended up on YouTube and I kind of, I, I just, I would like, for example, Neil Young just had a 75th birthday party or anniversary. I did six interviews with Neil Young. I've never seen them. I know. I know this is, it's a problem. Apparently there is a lot of concern that the tapes, because they were tapes, are degrading in um, storage somewhere that CTV owns, that Bell Media owns. So there's a lot of concern that a lot of this great footage is going to disappear. Well, I think they digitized it. I just wonder if they did it all or did the right ones. You know, I don't know. Okay, Terry, I know that this is an unfair question to ask you, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's like the Sophie's Choice question. If you had to, who are your favorite bands from the West Coast? Oh, come on. You have to. Can you imagine if I turned that around and asked you about you and your Toronto bands? Okay. The bands that stay with me are like Doug and the Slugs, who, who are kind of lost now in the, in the scheme of things. But at the time, they were just a sensational band. And they played, I think it was 35 dates at the Commodore Ballroom. They were the darlings of Vancouver. And they were incredible to interview. They gave us an amazing um, uh, videos to play. Because Doug knew what he was doing. Anyway, Doug knows songs. Um, Harry Manx, who's on Salt Spring Island, is an amazing guitarist from another world. He just, he plays the blues as though he grew up in India. Uh, Jan Arden, you know, because I'm, I'm thinking now about the West. I think about Alberta, Corblund, Jan Arden, uh, Katie Lang, um, Leslie Feist. People like that. I, I, I've left out friends. I'm sorry. I'll just leave it at that. It's a it is a tough call. I'll tell you who my two faves are from the West Coast. Uh, 5440. Yep. They were my buddies. Yep. And Sarah McLaughlin. Of course. Those are my two faves from the of West course. Coast. Amongst others, but it's my Sophie's choice. If I had to, those would be the ones. My favorite uh, 5440 album as much as I liked everything that they did was, was the one, two albums ago, which was acoustic, all stripped down, all of their music done just with piano and guitar. Oh man, I play that all the time. I love it. Love it a lot. So this is one of the things that I had mentioned earlier on Terry, where I said that you, you uh, don't age. I don't know a lot of, 80-year-old men that freak out over 5440 who speak <laughs> about music like a teenager. Well, um, I'm sure there's people out there in your podcast who would say act your age, but 
um, I'm going to do an audition. Uh, and the father, I think, is 60. So you, you, you have to transcend that. You have to um, just be a father and not worry about what the number is. Um, I th This music bug bit me very early on. I have a bit of a music major in high school. And um, I <laughs> I gave up being the quarterback on the football team to be in the band. Like a as the kid said, then a band suck. Uh, and I, but I have always felt extremely comfortable with music because I knew music theory. I knew where the, I knew when a singer was off key. I knew when, where I knew where the beats were. I can actually edit music now because I know where the rhythm is and I know where the key is, the key changes are. So it kind of, it's all one big giant love in with music. Jim in Dartmouth, one of the listeners in Nova Scotia, wants to know of all the musicians you ever saw or interviewed, who had the most talent but never seemed to make it big, either because of the times, record production, or just plain imploded? Well, that, you know, that's, that might be the hardest question of all, because you, you don't want to shortchange anybody. But who could have been? Oh, yes. His name was Richard Bell, a pianist, incredible pianist, uh, boogie-woogie pianist, like, like true New Orleans stride piano, uh, Professor Longhair type. Um, and I met him, oh, who was he playing with? Ronnie Hawkins. Uh, he was in Toronto, and I sort of followed him as best I could. He ended up being in... Janis Joplin's last great band. When she died, when she overdosed, the guys, the Toronto guys, there were three of them in the band, drove north from Los Angeles to my place in Vancouver, spent the night. We, we uh, had a bottle of wine and uh, bawled our eyes out. And then I sent them on their way to Toronto. And then, and then he became a member of the band. Um, and uh, then I always saw him playing with the Colin Linden. He was, first of all, he was a, a hunk of burning love. He was an incredible looking guy. And he played these, a piano and had somebody taken him, he would have been Harry Connick Jr. He would have been just like that. All the talent in the world. And um, when Colin Linden and I talk, we talk about Richard Bell. And then we talk about everything else. So, Terry, um, let's talk about interviews. Oh. There's a question, first of all, from Robin in Ontario, and she wants to know what your most memorable interview of your 40-year career has been. Just an easy question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, keep in mind, what, what was her name again? Robin. Robin. Um, Keep in mind that not only did I do much music, but I also did movie television interviews at the same time. And for 10, 12 years, I would go to Los Angeles or New York on the weekends and screen a couple of movies, sometimes as many as five, and do anywhere from 20 to 50 interviews in a weekend, three-minute interviews. But you got to talk with the stars that you wanted to meet all your life. So those are memorable, like Robin Williams. Always, always, always memorable. All you, all you had to decide going in was, what was the first question? Because then get out of the way. Just get out of the way 
like on a roller coaster ride, just set it in motion and away you go. Robin Williams was the best interview. Frank Zappa was the best rock and roll interview, period. Really? But, but you dare not start with a lame question because it was over. But if you engaged him with the first question, he was with you. And we became very good friends, actually. And the last interview I did with him was in his home uh, in uh, Laurel Canyon. Uh, and I can still remember the kids running in through the interview. So that's Dweezil and Boone in it, right? When they were kids. Anyway, um, uh, interviews, uh, wow. The Stones, you remember because of the Stones. Oh, man. Oh, Roebuck Pops Staples, the head of the Staples Singers, the father. You remember him, uh, Jim Carrey, um, Madonna. You got to interview Madonna? For all of three minutes. And my question to her was, like she was a star of, maybe it was Evita. Uh, and I said, um, if your management came to you and said, if you stop being a singer and just concentrated on acting, uh, would you do it? She said, how big do I have to be? How big do I have to be? Like, why can't I do it all? So it's pretty wow. cool. I want to talk about the, the, uh, the art of interviewing, which uh, obviously there's no one else who can respond to this question like you. So how do you prepare for an interview? Uh, I try to find the answers before I ask the questions. What do you mean? I try to do my uh, research uh, until I can see that there's a nugget of a question that if I, if I head in that direction, it can lead to other uh, answers. You just have to, it's a key to a door. Uh, if you find out, for example, if someone, uh, when they were very young, now that they're a star, but when they're very young, um, was insecure and never came out of their bedroom uh, on the weekends or whatever, you just find out something. And so then you find a way through it, through the music or the film or whatever, to that moment. You just find another way to get in there without asking it directly. Um, I just try to know where the answer is going to go before I get there. I'm always open to completely ad-libbing something totally and having no, uh, uh, none of that. Because you, you, there should be questions that immediately pop into your brain as you sit down. And that was one of the keys when we did those junket interviews and they're three minutes. There's a three minutes, two cameras, you sit down, put on a microphone. That takes exactly 15 to 20 seconds to get that microphone on. In that 15 to 20 seconds, I'm asking my first, I'm actually talking. I'm actually talking to the person I'm looking at. They've been in that room for three hours in three minute increments and they're tired and they want to go home. But if you engage them in the first 20 seconds, the rest of it falls into place. Um, but do your homework, do your homework. That's all. Interesting. And has your approach to interviewing changed over the last 40 years? No. <laughs> no. I just, I tried to get better at it. That's all. I tried to get better at it. And I, 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 I know when I'm bullshitting. And, I, and, and when all I'm doing is just filling space 
And I apologize. Sometimes I apologize and come back another time or I just do the best. I do the best I can. Hey, Terry, you do this thing and I don't even know what it is, but you throw the mic in someone's face or the camera's rolling yeah. and you just start chatting yeah. and you don't even ask a question. Yeah, that's right. What? Explain that to me. Give me the, the this is the secret TDM sauce. Well, what an is interview, it? it, it, it you know how they use that phrase, a Q&A, question and answer? Yeah. I don't want to do Q&A. I want to have a conversation that after it's done, I cut myself out and the other side of the conversation remains. That really is one of the keys because I do my own editing. Um, I'll ask that question, but if I can find a way to not ask the question and just let the, no, that's not true. What you do is you ask that question and then start to cut the back end of it. So it all be, it becomes, instead of a 90 second answer, it becomes a five minute answer. That's the, that's the key of editing is to just get out of the way and let the conversation flow. But I love ad-libbing at the, at the best of times. And it kind of stems from my, from when I was in Toronto for a couple of a couple of months, and I I did an audition for a Molson Golden Ale because I was that's what I was doing I was acting, and it turned out to be just one of the greatest gigs of my life uh, because I was working with John Candy and Dan Aykroyd and Gilda Radner and all of those guys from Second City on they a beer commercial. A, they were doing the beer commercials with me for, <laughs> for five years. We did beer commercials together. And I watched them ad lib their way through their comedy and 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 um, what they did, how they taught the Second City, and I'd learn from that. I learned that just go with it, just go with your heart, go with your feel, trust yourself, apologize if you ask the wrong question, and just just do it. You, every once in a while, you, as you know, you someone on the other side of the question will just go, "That's stupid." Fine. Stupid. Yes, it is. But can you answer the question? <laughs> so what happens when you're doing an interview and you go in your head, okay, this thing is going south. This is yeah. not working. What do you do? I usually stop. I just say it's not working. Okay. But you're, let's say you're live on much. Oh, okay. You're live. You can't. That's, there's no, you don't have the luxury of saying, okay, yeah. let's just cut it. Yeah, it's the, it's the walk-in interview that you're doing a show and all of a sudden somebody walks in. Okay, well, actually, if they're assholes, sorry, if they're, if they're, just, <laughs> if they're just being dorks, there's not much, you, you know, there's not much you can do. You, you have respect for yourself and, and your talents. And if someone is just not going to play the game, if you're merely a pawn in their game. Has it happened to you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. With Kiss. But I learned my lesson from Kiss. Just hand them the mic and get out of the way because they're their own show. This was in the dress. I never should have done it in their dressing room, just as they were going out on stage. Totally buzzed. Uh, one of the guys of the band <laughs> came out, followed the arrows to the left and the drummer went right. You know, that, that, that's what you And I just I learned from that instead of tr I had a list of questions. They didn't, they're not going to answer the questions. They're going to say whatever the hell they want to say. No matter, well, as soon as your lips stop, they'll start talking. I should have just simply handed the mic to them and let them do what they plan to do. So, Terry, what makes a good interview? Oh, man, if I'm not there, 
if literally they become a story, like Robbie Robertson, right? He's a storyteller. The guy tells stories. Just get him going. Just get him going and then shut up. Get out of the way. Let him finish the story. And then, and then when the story's done, wait five seconds or four seconds or three seconds to see if there's a part two. Because sometimes there is. You just, you never know. Live television is completely different, as you well know. I'm talking about recorded stuff, really. Live television, there's a need to fill that space to keep moving forward, to watch the clock, where you are and what you're doing, maybe play a tune, play a video. Um, The blessing of recorded interviews is that the stuff that doesn't work, she just cut it out and just keep going, you know. I didn't have that luxury many times. Sometimes I did, but mostly it was like, we're live and whatever happens, happened. My favorite, uh, uh, one of my favorite (laughs) moments, it's just my, nobody else ever shares this, but I, I remember this moment. I was in Toronto for something. And I happened to walk in, I think it was like 11.45 on a Tuesday. I walked into the main room and I heard someone say, there's one. <laughs> and, and 15 minutes later, I was on air uh, for a couple, three hours. Somebody oh my God, so no one showed up for their shift? Exactly. There's one. <laughs> and I never forgot those two words. There's one. Yeah. They were looking for anybody who can talk to a camera. There's one. When you talk to a camera, who are you talking to? Do you see someone on the other side? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do think of um, someone. Doesn't take any shape or form, but I imagine that someone's um, from much music uh, uh, in their kitchen or in their living room. Uh, uh, maybe in a bar even, you know, it's just, <clears throat> you think about them and what they're doing. Uh, you, you put it in the back of your brain and then you get on with your job, but I'm caught. And especially on radio, I'm very cognizant of who I'm talking to and what they might be doing and how they're feeling. And sometimes, and Steve does this well, um, he'll say something and then he'll, the, the other side of Steve will talk to the other Steve saying, yeah, but what if, what if he, in other words, he's got a second voice inside him that uh, sort of questions. It's the conversation that S- Steve Anthony had in his brain, except he t- brings it out through his mouth. And like he has a dialogue going on inside that nobody else knows, but you hear these two guys. And I've heard a couple of really good announcers, Fred Latrimo for one, who did exactly that same thing. And the, and the second voice inside them was funnier than the first. That was hilarious was called calling the shots on the first one. Anyway, just a just a thing that happens. So much music has been described as sort of like a, a, a cultural curation platform that changed the, you know Canadian culture, etc. What do you think is the most important thing that much music has done over the years? Given exposure to artists that never would have had that exposure made careers for artists and bands, singers and songwriters who never would have had the exposure that they had, uh, supported the industry, expanded it. That's one of the things that it really did. This, If this was our Canadian music industry, 
when much music came along, it went like that. Well, you just, just your your hands up. just opened up like about My two feet wide. Literally, yeah. it doubled the the width of what the pipeline was. All of because it was really formulated and tied down and really boring as hell. You're talking about the music industry at the time. Totally. Yeah. Thank, thank you for amplifying that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it 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 made Canadian music infinitely better, infinitely more interesting, uh, and and gave voice to those who didn't have one. And uh, and then and that what came with those artists were their fans. And their families, and their communities, yeah. and their provinces, and then Canada. We we, um, we were a poor second cousin to America. American music just took over the airwaves, and Canadian content was supposed to build uh, infrastructure, like studios and management, uh, and that's and and it did in part. But much music really blew that through the roof. It was it, it, invaluable. So when that history gets written. I hope that much music's role in it uh, is still as solid as it is in my heart and my mind. Why did you leave, Terry? Why did you leave much music? Um, I've got to think about that. Denise phoned me and said, it was a good run. She phoned me and said, you know, it was 15 years. It's a, it was a good run. And I said, how are you, Denise? <laughs> I'm the guy that did the, her audition. I think it was Moses said, uh, we've got somebody got an eye on, uh, do an audition with her, uh, do an interview with her and see, what, see how she works, react. So I did that and sent it off. And then all of a sudden she was my boss. I was, listen, I was the oldest guy there when I walked in. <laughs> Before you started. Yeah. So, and I'm the oldest guy as I was leaving. I mean, it was time to turn it, turn it over and do something else. Although I thought I could be uh, uh, maybe the historian uh, you know, looking at the history of rock and roll and, and putting things in their place, but context. Wasn't too, yeah. Context. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But, uh, I'm, so I didn't really want to slow down. So I just kept going. But was that hard for you when Denise said it's been nice? Yeah. It hurt the heart. It hurt. Uh, and it made me then look around and go, well, what do you want to do now? But I already had, I always had uh, some, uh, the first time I ever got fired, I swore that I would never have anyone pull my string again. And so I had multiple jobs, like you, multiple projects, things that that you could throw yourself into if one went away. Um, I always wanted to have at least two or three gigs going, some uh, some larger than others, but things there, right? So that if someone said, thank you, goodbye, you had something to fall back on, uh, something to throw yourself into. And it kind of worked well, it worked for me. It may have given the appearance that I wanted to do everything, but I didn't. I just didn't want to ever be in that position again where somebody could affect my life. So that's, that's why I did that. Exactly the same with me. hundred percent the same with me. Don't mess with me. Don't mess with Erica. Simple as that. Let me tell you a Moses story. Um, He, I, he rarely phoned me, but he phoned me once and said, 
Um, we've had a we 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 made an application for a radio license or television license in Alberta, and one of the uh, businesses that helped us was CKUA Radio. Um, I'll go into a story on them. Well, yeah, I'd like to thank them. I said sure. That's when I realized that CKUA was the station that I used to listen to when I was a Mountie in Alberta. Right, this is years later, and I walked into the station in Alberta and in, in Edmonton. And <laughs> they were playing everything. Whoever was sitting in the chair at the time was playing what they wanted to play. That was the music policy. That's weird. No one does that anymore. Nobody does that. Nobody, like nobody. Still to this day, it's, it's what they do. It's what you do. It's what I do. Because well, you're what there. The station, what the station does. And I went there, and when I was leaving the station, after spending the day there doing the interview, I said, um, I, this is how I hear radio in my head. If we could figure out how to do this, could I do a show for you guys? We said, well, they don't do rock and roll. Well, but you don't know rock and roll. You've got, you're at blues, you jazz, everything. Let me just send you something. So I sent them a demo. And they said, sure. And so I'm just going now into my 26th year of doing Mulligan Stew on CKUA Radio. Um, Holger Peterson, who does the blues show on CBC, his original blues show on CKUA, he's going into year 45. When you, when you get to this spot and you find uh, creative freedom, I'll get back to that in a second. Um, when you find it and you find what you love, you just do it. So where I'm sitting now in my studio, I do my my show at home, uh, and and it's every every Saturday. It's two hours, and 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 I feel it. And I love it. I get to do interviews. I get to play all the music, and people seem to really like it. You have this thing, Terry, where I I feel like you are again like me. You mentioned uh, you compared yourself to me. I'm an opportunist, and what that people look at me funny when I say that. Uh, Opportunist is not someone in my mind who stands on the shoulders of others to get ahead. It's it's finding opportunities that are mutually beneficial in wherever you look. Yeah. And it seems to me that you are exactly that, where you have an idea, your passion drives you, you get an idea, and then you find the opportunity in order to make it happen. Well, I pitch a lot. Yeah. So I you're, like you're, you're and, super and I proactive. I don't know about you, but but twilight, just just before dawn, just right about 6 a.m., 5.30, 6 a.m., I grab a pad and I start writing down thoughts. I, it's clarity of mind, I think, is what that is. You've had six, seven, eight hours sleep. Your mind is sharp. And I just, I feel, I feel that's why I have, I got note, notepads. <laughs> I, I still do pen and paper notepads because... Uh, I just don't want to forget these ideas. So, uh, yes, and we challenge each other. I'm sure you challenge yourself. If you're going to do it, do it. If you're just going to sort of think about it, you're wasting your time. Uh, well, that makes that's the difference between there are people who talk and there are people who do. And I yeah. think you just nailed it. You are a doer. I love the story about how you ended up becoming a wine media personality. You went from music to wine. Why? Because you like wine. You just made it happen. Uh, I, I didn't know much about wine, but um, I did a, a series with um, 
Jason Priestley, we co-produced it and co-hosted it called Hollywood and Vines. We, we were fishing out here and we were, we were in a fishing tournament. We were sitting in the boat, you know, it was just the two of you and a guide. And so he had lots of time to talk. Uh, and uh, and he, he, all he talked about was wine. He collected, collected wine. And, uh, and, and, and I talked about music and about albums and 45s and things showing up at the door every day. He said, imagine if we did a wine show, there'd be wine show up at the door every day. And that's where it started. We started to sort of imagine this. And then we hooked up with Chad Oaks, our producer, and we all got together and it took seven years to shoot three years of Hollywood and Vine. <laughs> Is it true though? Do you get wine delivered at your, to your front door? Every day. Wow. Yeah. I want what but you I mean, have. Uh, as I said, I'm surrounded by bottles of wine, but uh, but there's there's only that much taken out of each bottle. I just you sip, you make your notes, you sip, you make your notes, you spit. You can't you can't be drinking at ten o'clock, eleven o'clock at noon. You, your days are done, so you you spit. There's a lot of spitting, just getting a sense of the wine, and then you do your stories on the on the winemakers and and where they were grown. So uh, and that and then after I, I did Hollywood Vines, I, I said to Meg. I like the people in wine. I love the people, the, the farmers, the the winemakers. I like everybody around wine. Let's go take a look in the Okanagan and see what's going on. We got up there. I was doing a panel of some kind. And I got back to the hotel room and Meg said, look at this house. And it was a farmhouse, a hundred-year-old farmhouse with a barn. And the barn became my studio. Oh, my God. Is that the- where you are now? No, this was a couple of years ago. Oh, okay. It was the greatest. I was surrounded by vineyards. And I and that's when I realized, this was 2007, I realized there was no one in the Okanagan doing a wine show on radio. Opportunity. Duh. So away I went, and uh, that's been 13 years ago. So that's how that started. Um, I love doing, well, I just finished editing a, a wine feature. Um, I just, I love it. I, I love the people around it. And I think I had this argument uh, yesterday with someone I work for and they were talking about art. And I said, you know, winemaking is an art form. No, not really. Yeah, it is. The fruit does its thing, but you have to make that fruit come alive. You have to, and and, and it has to sit in the bottle for three, four, five, 10, 12, whatever years. It has to be good. Well, you don't have to convince me at all. Because I'll drink that art anytime. Well, not right the first thing in the morning. But uh, Terry, you also wrote an autobiography mm. called Mulligan Stew, obviously, yeah. uh, in reference to the radio show that you've done as well. Uh, no doubt there was a lot of self-reflection through that process. So what did you learn about TDM while you wrote that book? Uh, that's a good, very good point. Because that's, that's what happens. When you start to open up your heart, uh, you reflect on things that you have long since set aside, right? Um, family interaction, moments in, in family relationships that went sideways, um, friends, uh, friendships broken, friendships found. Uh, it, it's, it was, it's, it's, a, it's a cleansing of sort. Um, and every time I talk to an author now who's written a book like that, I can relate 
I can, I can ask questions that, that I, I know what they went through. I've written a book. I get yeah. you. <laughs> the, the thing I always, always fascinated by is when you go through the editing process again with a book as, as the writer, and they, they say, send you your galleys and you look at all, and they have all those notations on the side saying, lose this, no, leave, no, nothing there, take that out. And you're going, no, these, these are my, this is my life for playing with. <laughs> no, you can't take that out. What about that whole summer of 2004? No. So, and, and what they find of interest and what you find of interest are two totally separate things. Right. So, um, so what did you learn about yourself? I learned, uh, first of all, hold on to the rights of your book so that you can uh, maybe rewrite it and do it again. Uh, I, I, I thought that book could have had a much better reception than it, it got. Uh, and I'd love to go back and rewrite it and do it again. Wow. That's impressive. That's what I learned. And then it also made me a better interviewer because uh, all of those books that come by this time of year where we're doing author interviews, it's, um, uh, it's good to know what the process is like and what they went through to get that book in your hands, right? Terry, we're about to wrap up this interview. You've got one last question, which is, yeah, looking back at your body of work and your life at this point, what are you most proud of? Mm. Uh, well, it's just self-serving on my part. Uh, honesty. Uh, <laughs> I, I tried to keep it honest. I tried to be, I tried not to lie which is tough in the business because you, you, first of all, you don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. When someone says, how'd you like the album? I was uh, asked a question back. Can I just tell you? Sure. Go ahead. They're not ever ready for it. Yeah. You know. They don't really mean it. No, they don't they really don't. want to hear. No, they don't. And so you find a way through that. You don't have to lie. You just don't say what you want to say, or, or maybe just say something else. Uh, find something that you did like mm. about it and then talk about that. So you're proud uh, that you've always been sort of uh, sensitive to other people's feelings. Is that what you're saying? No. Okay. No, I wouldn't go that far. I, I, I basically, <laughs> I, I shoot my mouth sometimes and it gets me in trouble, but um, I, I don't mean to be mean. I, 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 I'm actually my, my mantra now is be kind, but I'm, I'm trying to make up for lost ground. I actually, after that book, and there was a, a, a strain in there about uh, uh, um, uh, apologizing for the for the butthole that I was for many years when I was just pushing my way through crowds of people trying to get to the front. Uh, I went back and apologized to many of those people. I made a list. And I'm still apologizing. Um, and I'm tr still trying to be a better person. Just when you get it right, is when somebody comes along and says, your time's done now. Uh, I was thinking about something way back when, one of your questions, uh, of, the, of the legacy of much music. There is absolutely, you, you'll agree with this, I think, absolutely no way that you can ever put a value on creative freedom. No boundaries, creative freedom. What do you want to do? Go ahead. Here's a camera. Here's a studio. There's there's people who will support you and help you. What do you want to do? I mean, in our lifetime, we might get one, maybe two opportunities like that ever. Other than that, everything has, uh, oh, by the way, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do this. You can't do that. 
it's it's gold. It's absolute gold. And I think that's what keeps that's what bonds all of us is that we all experienced that extraordinary gift of creativity, companionship, art, communication, audience yeah. um, for a short period of time in our lives. Yeah. Now, apparently I get to ask you one question. Yes, you do. Now, normally it would, I, one question is ridiculous. Nobody, nobody asks one question. Um, uh, I thought of things like uh, a favorite moment, favorite concert, favorite, all those things that you, you might ask yourself. But can you, uh, in this process, going through the Much Music staff, etc., uh, I'd love to see you talk to uh, Jay uh, Myrus uh, or Basil or, or um, Tony Wanamaker, any of the shooters about what that was like, maybe even in a group, because they all have stories, you know that. Because they were, when we were on one side of the camera, they were there on the other side of the camera. So I'd love, love to hear that. But will you go looking for John Roberts, Chief White House Correspondent for Fox News? You bet I will. <laughs> I don't know if I'll find him, <laughs> but I will. Wow. There's a journey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a journey. And he finds himself at the very epicenter of everything that's happening now. But what's interesting is that much music primed him for the chaos. Yeah. Gave him tools that he could never have learned anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. And how close is he to the guy that we knew? The basic core guy. Is he still the same guy? I don't know. To me, he seems a little unrecognizable. Yeah, no um, kidding. But I think that you need to do that in order to survive in American broadcasting. Wow. What a journey from from hard rock, thrash metal, to the front seat at the, in the White House. First question, every time. First question goes to John. Yep. You didn't give me, a, you didn't, is that my question? Well, my question <laughs> was, are you going to go find John and get him on camera? Okay. And I've answered it. And thank you so much, TDM. What a pleasure for me to spend time with you and to get to know you a little better. And hopefully everyone who listens to this podcast will be inspired by your uh, energy, really, your, your nonstop energy and your opportunistic, um, and I mean that with, you know, uh, with love, your opportunistic, constant reinvention and your passion for creating new stuff. Uh, we have a lot, of, a lot in common. You we and certainly I. do. Yeah. Um, if you would, uh, that's me wrapping you up. And now to the listener, uh, there are many more episodes to come and I would like to have you as part of it. So you can always find me on social media. Look for Eric M on LinkedIn, on Twitter, Instagram, even Facebook. And you could share some feedback about the show. You can go to the website, ericam.com backslash podcast. And you can find all the other episodes of this show. And uh, we'd love to get your feedback. Leave a review. Leave five stars, obviously, right, TDM? Five yeah. stars. This is a five-star show. And um, subscribe because there are so many more amazing stories to be told on reinvention of the VJ. So thanks again for listening. Thank you again, TDM, for making time for me. 
And here's to uh, many, much more music and meaning and many reinventions. Thanks for listening. Follow Erica M's Reinvention of the VJ podcast. Subscribe and follow more episodes. Click to reinventionofthevj.com. Podcast produced in collaboration with Steve Anthony Productions. Editing and coordination of Flalo Communications, Inc. Copyright 2020. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world, and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com.